0: Listening to Ping, a new podcast by Apnic discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host Robbie Mitchell. Each fortnight, we'll be chatting with internet researchers and operators from around the world about the research they and their colleagues are doing, and insights they've gained into the well-being of the internet. For our third episode, we'll be talking again to Apnic's chief scientist Jeff Houston. If you missed our first chat with him about Facebook's 2021 outage add it to your playlist. In this episode, we'll be somewhat continuing on the vein of our last episode, where we chatted with Ignacio Castro from the Queen Mary University of London about a project he recently collaborated on to characterize the demographics and trends in the IETF across its history and how this has impacted the evolution of the standardization process. Our discussion is based on an APNIC blog post that Jeff wrote earlier in the year about the history of the standardization process and how a recent mentioning of a foundational element of said process during one working group discussion at IETF 111 led Jeff and I'm sure others to question what has become of the standards process. Jeff, welcome back to Ping.
1: Thanks, Robbie. It's uh, good to be here and good to be back. I don't know about you, but I always think the listeners are out there having a walk Now, I I have a walk when I listen to podcasts and, you know, if you happen to live in the same town as I do, and it's a small town so you probably don't, but if you find some mad old bugger having a huge argument with the kangaroos out there, it's me. And I'm not actually really arguing with them, but I'm taking issue with what's in the podcast. So hopefully this week, Robbie, we'll we'll manage to sort of make some things upset you as much as explain what's going on and, and have a final discussion about, you know, the current state of play.
0: Indeed, indeed. Yes, we've got a bit of controversy ahead with this podcast. As mentioned at the top of the show, we intend to discuss a blog post that you wrote a few months back following IETF 111 regarding a discussion that happened during one of the working groups, which ruffled some feathers. But for those who have been around the IETF for many years, it was somewhat perplexing as it kind of took people back to the grand old days of how the IETF and the standards process worked. Jeff, can you take us back to the scene of the discussion and explain why it led you to write your blog post?
1: Well, you know, let's name names. Um, At that IETF, when was it? I think it was July. Um, The Secure Interdomain Working Group, which has now been renamed because, you know, the original Protocol Development Working Group collapsed in a <laughs> a tsunami of recrimination and, and tantrums, and so it regrouped as an operations working group. But it's still doing much the same work, which is developing um, standards. And a proposal sort of came up in discussion that we should actually require what stuff we're working on to have as a minimum point to progress to independent interoperating implementations. And that is a precondition to advancing it. In other words, the standard needs to be useful to actually help folk write code.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff. This is what you should be doing anyway when creating a standard, right?
1: We'll, we'll talk about this because, like I said, it's kind of a blast from a past and we're not quite sure if the past is really the past we want anymore. Okay, so, you know, in some ways I need to actually take you back in the time machine whizz, whir, 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 and head back to the 1980s in order to sort of give you some illustration of why this idea of independent interoperable implementations of specs was so important to the IETF years ago, but why it's being dropped now and, and, you know, why we don't give it the same level of importance that we used to. So, you know, hold steady. We're going back. We're going back. All the way back.
0: I'm going to quickly stop you, Jeff interoperability is a word that we'll mention a few times and struggle to get our tongues around. Uh, Can you please give us a brief explanation of what interoperability is and why it's important in the context of the internet?
1: Um, I talk, you hear, you understand. Interoperability is being able to have two different things meaningfully communicate. And so in some ways, language is all about interoperation, as long as we're speaking the same one. It's about relying on a common system to exchange data. So what we're talking about here is not just how to define a system. You could define your system. I could define mine. We're fine. But if we're building a network, the system that I build better work with the one that you built. We have to be able to mesh together seamlessly. That's what interoperation is all about.
0: Good. All right. Now we're back to the 1980s.
1: Oh, we are when computers were the size of rooms, where when I bought a computer from a vendor, I didn't just buy the hardware, I bought the printers, the terminals, you know, it was an entire environment. There were IBM shops, of which there were many. Um, There were Burroughs shops and Univac shops and, and so on. And all of them had their own proprietary way of hooking up these devices to the mainframe. And so IBM uh, had a networking architecture they called SNA, uh, whatever it stood for, I've long since forgotten, it doesn't matter. Uh, digital, the Digital Equipment Corporation, otherwise known as DEC, had a networking protocol called, you guessed it, DECnet. And the one I really loved, because, you know, if you're a company called Wang, <laughs> really Wang, and you made word processors and you wanted to tie together the typing pool, yes, such things existed, into a network, you called it. WangNet. Now I love that name. I don't know why it died.
0: (laughs) I'm sure it's a favorite of some of our listeners too.
1: It's it's a fantastic name, isn't it? Novell and Netware, Apple and AppleTalk. And so the world was full of single vendor implementations of networking. Could you make your SNA network talk to an AppleTalk network? Well, no, that was never the point. You were either an IBM shop or you weren't. And it was kind of, well, you know, Sorry, you're not one of them. We don't talk. Now, as the 1980s progressed, this managed to annoy a lot of people, a lot of people, because part of the issue was vendors saw this as lock-in. But once they snuck the mainframe in, they were done for, for almost decades. It was so hard to get a vendor out because you had to change everything, even your staff, who'd been, you know, trained as good little SNA programmers were kind of useless if you then went and bought something from DEC. And and so the entire industry was sort of sitting there going, I'm sure you're making lots of money, but the customer doesn't feel too happy about this. And there was a push. And interestingly, governments were big purchasers and they pushed their cosy telephone companies into making some reforms and changes, And through the 80s came this push for an independent, vendor-neutral architecture for networking. And it was actually called, grandiosely I guess, but, you know, call it what you wanted, Open Systems Interconnection, or OSI.
0: So this was a move towards interoperability?
1: Well, that was the whole intent, yes. Uh, Open, well not the way you and I would call open these days. Um, (laughs) You had to pay for it. You had to pay for the specifications. And, and, you know, they delivered two metres, a stack of two metre high paper uh, to your your office going, there you are, you know, have a good life. It was certainly vendor neutral and it was sponsored by the International Organisation for Standardisation and a weird mob called the International Electrotechnical Committee. And this was meant to be, a set of standards of how to put information on the wire and how you could get the same information back off the wire somewhere further away. And it didn't have to be all built by IBM or all built by DECnet or anyone. If you had two different vendor implementations of OSI, they should be able to talk to each other. Now, in the days of the internet, you sit there and say that sentence and you go, I'm sorry. That's just life. My app on my Android talks to an app on my iOS device, talks to my Mac, talks to my Linux host, talks to this, talks to that. It all talks to Google. I'm like, I'm sorry, was this ever a problem? And the answer was, oh, yes. Oh, yes. Many of the days where you'd write the magnetic tape and move it from one vendor's machine to another because the only thing the industry had actually managed to do, and even that badly, was standardise... Well, they standardised both 7-track and 9-track tape, so they weren't entirely interoperable, were they? But, you know, magnetic tape was about it. Nothing else interoperated. And so, yeah, uh, a lot of frustration at the time of, of the late 1980s. And governments led the charge here thinking that, well, they bought a whole lot of IT. If they took a stand as representing the entire sort of computer consumer base, then industry would fall in line. And so they had this program, which, again, name it as you see it. It wasn't the government programming for buying IT. No, 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 no. It was a government OSI profile known as gossip. And many countries were encouraged to have their own gossip. Hang on a second. Wasn't this meant to be interoperable? Wasn't this meant to be one standard for all? Well, yeah, but, you know, sort of. (laughs) <laughs> so there was a US gossip, an Australian gossip, a UK gossip and this gossip and that gossip. And I'm sure they're all subtly different at the time. But, you know, the principle was that it was just one large OSI. And, you know, they actually got a few vendors sucked in to actually supporting it. Uh, DEC, in one of its last moves before its ignominious demise, uh, made DECnet Phase 5 based on OSI. Uh, and, and various folk, including me, have said that was part of DEC's demise because uh, the stuff really was not good. Uh, and one of, the, one of the national academic and research networks tried to build an entire setup on it. The dear old UK with Janet and the Coloured Book Protocols uh, was actually based on an OSI foundation. But, and there's this is big but, problem was it didn't really work. And part of the issue was there was a fundamental inconsistency way, way, way down... And the inconsistency was actually based in the way these standardisation standardization organisations worked. Now, I had, I had a job at one point being, uh, a, a, the company I worked for was representative on Standards Australia and, and we got circulated specifications and we all had a vote and we voted to adopt something as an Australian standard and gave it a standards number. Now, the pathetic thing was we didn't actually get the spec We just got the cover page, (laughs) just the cover page. like Crazy. And so we all voted yes, we'll accept this because no one ever had any reason to vote no because it's a cover page, right? Who knows?
0: So you would have been basing it off about 50 words or so.
1: Yeah, just the title. Yeah, it's it's a good enough as a standard. And, And that was a kind of the joke about standards that we were voting on this stuff and none of us had a clue what we were voting for. Okay, problem number one. Don't vote for standards. It's not a voting thing. Problem number two, particularly with standards, is when you get a difference of opinion, it's really, really hard to figure out which one is better. Because in the standards world, you're normally dealing with nation states. And the only way you figure out which nation is better than any other nation uh, historically has actually been to exchange hot lead at very fast, very fast speed. You go to war to figure out that problem. You can't sit there and go, okay, yeah, right, as a country, I'm wrong. You're right. Sorry about that. So when you get a difference of opinion and all you can do is vote, you don't want to be outvoted, and so you compromise. And so OSI at the time had this fundamental problem. The telephone guys were really keen on virtual circuits. Circuitry was brilliant because you put all the intelligence in the network. Now, you know, intelligence, network, what are you talking about? Let me phrase it differently. All the money went into the network, so the network operators saw dollar signs in their eyeballs and they loved it. But the alternate view was that you didn't do virtual circuitry and heavily equipped, expensive networks. You did cheap, dumb networks and put all the intelligence at the edge, which the computing industry loved. And the traditional telcos went, oh, my God, you're taking our dinner and our lunch and our breakfast and every other meal, oh, my God. So, oddly enough, a big set of tensions. Now, as usual with a lot of these global tensions, they ended up being transatlantic. Why? Where were all the big computer companies? Over on the western side of the Atlantic. Where were all the gigantic telephone companies, apart from one? Over on the eastern side in Europe. And AT&T, for the purposes of this debate, certainly was an honorary card-carrying European. And, And so when it came to OSI... They couldn't figure out if it was a packet protocol or a circuit protocol. Why is that? Well, they just couldn't work out which to, which to go for. There was this, this fundamental schism. So they couldn't vote halfway. There was no ATM compromise going on. It's, it's black or white. You know, there's no there's no middle ground here. And so they decided in a masterstroke of something to have both. And so there was a connectionless profile and a connection-oriented profile both at once. And it's sort of, well, how do they interoperate? Well, they can't. But this is an open systems interconnection. Yeah, but only for some things, some of the time, somewhere. <laughs> You're right. Now, the Europeans were very, very loath to you know, say that they hadn't invented a camel, they'd just done two completely different animals. And they were keen to promote that this was going to work. But uh, on the other side of the Atlantic, there was a certain amount of bemused eyebrow raising at these antics. And so folk who really needed this technology and needed it to be vendor independent just went on with their job. And I'm talking about DARPA and I'm talking about the funding for the internet project. And so despite all this, they just went and did it. They did a packet-based network and a full sweep. Now, it didn't use two metres of paper. It used an implementation. DARPA at one point actually commissioned the regents of the University of uh, California, Berkeley, to actually produce an open source, that word open again, but this time open source, not open paper, open source, implementation, running code of the TCP IP protocol suite.
0: Now, this is the first mention you've made about running code, Jeff. What, What is running
1: code? You could get the tape, because that was the only thing that really interoperated, load it up on your erstwhile PDP-11, or if you're really rich, your your VAX 11750 or oh, GASP 11780, read the tape into your Unix machine, compile it and run it, and presto, instant TCP IP, out of the box, working and you could actually make a campus network out of all of this, and many of us did across all kinds of vendor hardware, because lots of vendors then realised this is where the industry is going. They took that same tape and built it on their platforms as well. So terminal servers, remember those? Only vaguely, yeah. Uh, minis, mainframes—it all just worked. Now government still had OSI profiles. Gossip was still there, but folk were running TCP IP. And we come along then to the first of these sort of TCP IP getting out of the lab because the NSFnet, the National Sound Science Foundation Network, designed originally to help supercomputers talk to each other on a national basis, designed to make that massive investment in high performance computing in in the late 1980s, actually paid dividend for the entire American education research setup. And so they built then NSFnet, the first massive large-scale computer network I think we'd ever built in this scale. And what protocol was it going to run?
0: TCP IP. Well,
1: interestingly, they also had, also never much talked about, they specified that, you know, the builders of this, IBM built the routers and Merit over at the uh, University of Michigan system operated it. They also had connectionless, connectionless OSI in there as well whether it ever passed a packet in anger is anybody's guess. So oddly enough, they were kind of paying lip service to gossip, and the US did have a gossip, but at the same time avoiding it and just simply saying, well, the pragmatism was all about the ability to move packets, and this was great. And 1990 was just a takeoff year for TCP IP. Everyone was building one. Now, the problem is that everyone is building one, is a lot of people. And even then, it was pretty clear we were going to run out of addresses. And so we hit the big, oh, my God, we're going to run out of addresses by 1994. Don't forget, the year was 1990. We're going to run out by 1994. We weren't just going to run out. We're going to run out of Class Bs. So this was a bit of a dose of reality to the good old IETF. And it was sort of, wow, this IPv4 stuff. It's only got four years to go, and we haven't even got started. Oops. And and so the Internet Architecture Board of the time decided that it was time to show leadership. Now, these weren't coders. They were just a bunch of armchair theorists in many ways by that stage of their career in general. And so they decided the conventional wisdom, the common wisdom, was wisdom, which, you know, even as John... Galbraith always said, the conventional wisdom is a contradiction in terms. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it's not. It's just not. But anyway, they decided to go with the conventional wisdom. And in June 1992, uh, in their meeting, they pronounced that the future of IP was going to be OSI, Connectionless Profile. Uh, In July 1992, the IETF met in Danvers in Massachusetts and decided that that was not going to happen. And not only was that not going to happen, the IAB as it currently was constituted wasn't going to happen anymore either and it was the ultimate palace revolution. And part of the reason why was that this criticism of OSI of going, you know you have a working internet and you know we don't have a working OSI network, what are you doing? If you don't have code that works, why are you betting the entire internet, which wasn't very big at the time, but even so, it seemed a big thing. Why are you betting it on vaporware? Why are you betting it on stuff that doesn't actually have running code? Now, one of the folk who did try and build running code was a very eloquent speaker, Marshall Rose. He's still around. He wrote a book about this called The Open Book. And as well as describing his OSI development environment called ISOD, a subtle play on I- OSI. Uh, he rubbished the entire protocol from top to bottom. Here, I built some working code. By the way, this protocol sticks. It is really, really rubbish. But you know, his opinion carried a lot of weight. And by 1992, you know, there was the IAB had just got it wrong. So. Dave Clark from MIT got up at this Palace Revolution meeting of the IETF and came up with his quote that kind of encapsulated the feeling about what went wrong with the OSI work. And it had two parts. It was, we reject kings, presidents, and voting. In other words, you can't vote on the value of pi. You can't vote on technology. It's not opinion. It's truth. It works or it doesn't. It's not a debate, which you know resonated a lot, but it was more than that because not only did we reject King's presidents and voting, but if I can dig out the quote here, it was, we believe in rough consensus and running code. So what we believe is that if enough informed engineers get into a room, they'll probably be able to agree on what's going to work, rough consensus. You don't need to vote on it. It's obvious. And running code says the ultimate test is no matter how much stuff you put in in typing out this thing on paper or on your screen or any other way, if it's not code that works and works with other folk who have done the same thing from the same original spec, the spec is useless. So the spec had better be good enough to generate code in whatever language you want that interoperates with other folk who have the same thing going. They're running code.
0: So this is a real throwback to the academic and scientific origins of computers and the need for scientific evidence or proof to support or counter a theory.
1: Well, science and academic, yeah. Science and academic based on proof, but based on proof by example. So rather than saying, well, you know, reality's wrong because you can't implement my spec, it was more... If you can't implement my spec in a way that interoperates, there's something wrong with the spec. There's nothing wrong with reality. And we actually enshrined this in, we were busy publishing RFCs at the time, and by 1992, we are up to RFC 2026 that said an internet standard, stable well, cool, because you don't want it changing every week. Well understood, technically competent. I think that was a subtle dig at OSI and has multiple independent, interoperable implementations. And to be a full standard, rather than just a little itty bitty standard on its way, a full standard needs substantial operational experience and enjoys significant public support, whatever that means. And most of this was actually pouring a bucket of cold water over OSI, which was largely a dream about vaporware. And so the IETF went, I suppose, all the way. What they were doing was building stuff that was going to work because when a specification was published to get down onto the standards track, folk had to build it independently themselves, and then we'd have these bake-offs to actually test their interoperability. And by 1993, the biggest bake-off in the world was a trade show uh, started by Dan Lynch, who came out of going to say UC Berkeley, but Dan can correct me, it's one of those Californian ones in the Bay Area, who started a thing called Interop, which was putting the IETF to work, saying if all your standards really work, then we should be able to, within a day, set up a network in that convention center over there, wire up Ethernet to every single booth, and then get a whole bunch of different equipment running and exchanging packets, And if it doesn't, we've got this wrong, which was putting it to the ultimate litmus test, you know, the complete fire test. You haven't got months to sort it out. You've got a night. And the boat did take it a night. And when you bring equipment and show show the tyre kickers what you're doing, it better exchange packets or, you know, you're leaving. And so Interop was sort of the instantiation of this IETF idea of running code running interoperable independent code.
0: Now, Jeff, what you've just described here sounds eerily similar to the discussion you described at the start of this show that happened at IETF 111. So what's happened between 1992 and
1: 2021? (laughs) You know, in some ways, the whole hero hacker has almost disappeared off the planet. And these days, code is product and product is built to marketing spec not to engineering spec. And in in some ways, you know, we don't build code anymore, not in the way that we used to back in 1992, 93. Uh, It's an entirely different concept. Uh, Just to illustrate this, to amuse all of you, at at one point we'd predicted that the 16-bit AS numbers were running out. We'd used them all up. We needed to change BGP. This was just a pragmatic reality, you know, we're run out guys, we have to do something. And a product manager from an unnamed vendor came up to me at a meeting and said, "Uh, hey, Jeff, do you think you could postpone that exhaustion of the 16-bit AS numbers by a year or two? Our product isn't ready yet and we're waiting for approval from marketing. (laughs) So, you know, 10 years later, the internet wasn't what it used to be, is it? Uh, The internet was entirely different. And we changed. And in some ways we kept on talking about running code and we talked about the fact we didn't vote. But we ended up voting. These days, the IESG actually calls it ballots, and it's a vote. You know, let's call a spade a spade. But equally, in RFC 6410, and you can tell by the higher number, it came along later, we actually dispensed with the formal requirement for running code. Whether a standard is, you know, sufficient complexity and clarity to support this running code is something the market performs, and the IETF... Shouldn't judge the market.
0: Right. But it seems that the market has snuck its way back into the IETF and has subverted its ethos and how it was supposed to work.
1: Well, the the IETF the took the easy way out. Running code's too difficult. The implementers aren't actually attending these meetings. Uh, the folk attending the meetings are, are largely armchair theorists, having a fine old debate about angels on you know dancing on the head of a pin. And quite frankly, running code, I'm sorry, Take your grubby coat out of this august and highly academic discussion about the principles of architecture. And that's what the IETF had become. We had become what we decried back in 1992. And I suppose that's sort of a larger observation that if you're in a life or death struggle with someone, whoever ends up being a victor ends up being a lot like the person they defeated at the same time. You assume their values. And that's what we did. We morphed into the industry. And running code was just too hard. But it's morphed into a completely different battle. And this is why, in some ways, even today, that proposal was sort of, but we don't do it like that anymore. What do you mean by that? Because you've got to think about what a standard is these days and what we use it for. See, originally... A standard was all about helping us make networks work. And the whole thing was all about trying to get the packets and the bits and the bytes to actually come out the other end of all this baffling infrastructure. But standard specifications these days are actually weapons. They're armaments. And they're being, used in, they're being used in the battle around intellectual property, a battle between vendors of product a battle between nations, a battle that sees the the country with the most patents be the winner and the other countries paying them licensing fees, sometimes enormous, as losers in this battle. And so we don't use standards to make the world better. We just use standards to make some people richer and some people poorer, which is kind of a bizarre twist on this fate. But the IETF unconsciously, I think, has been tugged into this same space where now it's all about the productivity in terms of the number of standards you write and publish rather than their quality and so if we're in a war of numbers over how much space can I fence off and call my intellectual property versus you know your ability then having some grubby person walk in the door and mumble something about interoperable code I'm like I'm sorry Those are swear words we don't use around here, son. You better leave.
0: Has it divided those on the list and even those who are attending?
1: Not really. Um, (laughs) Why not? Because I suspect that most of the folk who attend the IETFs are actually now attending because it's their job, not because they have a passion. And because it's their job, the attitudes are a lot more pragmatic. And interestingly, again, it's all about the number of specifications, the productivity measured by... The size of the stack of paper. It's not about the productivity measured by the number of packets you push, and so we get all kinds of bizarre specifications, most of which are are confusing. The corpus of work, which is the IETF's RFCs, if you tried to do everything in every RFC that hasn't been deprecated, just take the ones that are ostensibly current, you would get a bundle of contradictions that make the whole. CLNS um, connection-oriented in OSI look like child's play, literally. I'm like, this stuff is just not just mildly contradictory, but totally and completely contradictory in the complete corpus of works. Even the dear old DNS, which I think is getting into a few hundred RFCs, together they don't define the DNS that works. It's just a random bunch of ideas, some of which might work with some of the others sometime, somewhere, and the rest near... You're not meant to build that. (laughs) And that's what we've become.
0: So the thing that we started off building to be, as you put it, uh, cheap and dumb, has become more complex through all this standardisation process.
1: Well, we defined ourselves on different terms from the industry incumbents. We wanted to be different from the telephone companies. We wanted to show that what they were doing was suppressing technology. And their ponderous mechanisms of voting and and ballots and creating paperwork was actually getting us absolutely nowhere. We had a point to prove. Now, we never bargained that we'd win. They were always so much bigger than us in so many ways. And if you look back into the early work on the internet, particularly around the time of the early 80s and on into the late 80s, when the NSF took a bet each way and did both TCPIP and OSI. We were always the experiment. We always thought that the adults would enter the room and tell us that we'd had an, a, enough fine lunches and dinners and it was time to let you know the serious folk and serious money move in. We never thought the serious money would tip on our heads. But when the serious money did tip on our heads and we became the mainstream, we inherited all of the problems of being the mainstream where the debates about what's best became debates about whose interests were being served by ostensibly what's best. And all of a sudden, it was an entirely different kind of debate being waged in the ITF, one for which the original ITF was not, not equipped for. Now, is this the price of winning? Absolutely. Were we naive? Well, I guess so. Could we have done it differently? Oh, geez, the path not travelled. I don't know, these hypotheticals are always really hard to guess and, you know, you're stretching my poor brain around what, what could have happened that would have made it any better or worse. And in some ways, you're one. You've got to take the good with the bad in winning. The internet is the global communications network. The internet is scaled to reach almost everything on this planet, living or inanimate. You know, you couldn't have got a bigger definition of winning we sucked in radio, we sucked in television, we sucked in everything. But the price of that win is a completely different structure, completely different with a whole bunch of different motivations. I applaud the folk, in fact, one guy in in the CiderOps working group going, we should get back to our roots. We really should think about what works. But I applaud it in the same way that I applaud much in the way of nostalgia. I can agree with my former youthful self that it was the right thing to do then. And, you know, in an ideal world, it's the right thing to do now. But in a much bigger, more complex world, the compromises we have to make to be the mainstream are very uncomfortable. And sometimes it is just we produce paperwork, contradictory, sometimes relevant, marginally good paperwork as the bulk of our product. Sad, sad. Well, in a way, but we did win. The world is the internet, like it or not. That was the price of victory.
0: And you still got the seat at the table. To finish, do you think that there is a place for running code still in the ITF?
1: You know, you've made me pause to think, and I think everyone should have a pause to think about this, because the ideal world was the same as the nostalgic world. Of course, specifications, if you're going to take the time and trouble, and we do take a lot of time and trouble, on average now it takes, I think it's five years to produce an internet internet sort of RFC, it takes a lot of time and a lot of trouble. The least we can do is make sure that it's good enough to actually produce code and rather than relying on some amorphous, ill-defined future market with the ultimate arbiter, we should at least do the rest of the industry the service of making sure the code is complete enough to actually allow independent implementers to implement these specs and produce stuff that talks to each other. That's just a mere courtesy. I can understand that and I agree. But if my job is to produce 20 RFCs this year, because that's my KPA for getting, you know, it's kind of implementations are stuff that I'm just going to get through this. And and so the expediency of where we are and what we do kind of says, a lot of folk who attend IETFs and participate, they not do it for the, the joy of writing code. They do it because they think they write good specs. And it's up to others to figure out whether they're good or not. That's not their job. That's where we are. The pragmatic view says running code was great. It helped us a lot. The world is not tolerant of spending the time and effort to do those checks. We'll leave it to others. But... Deep down in my little heart, my little black heart, that's still somewhere in 1988, yeah, it's the right thing to do running code. Of course it is.
0: Always a pleasure, Jeff.
1: Thanks all. Um,
0: See you soon. Thank you again and thanks to our listeners who made it this far. I hope you enjoyed this show and our others thus far. If so, please do subscribe and tell your colleagues about it. As mentioned at the start, this conversation is based on a blog post that Jeff wrote for the Apenick blog earlier this year. Check out the description for the link to it and share your thoughts on whether you think that running code needs to return to the standardization process and let us know what you think of the show. And if you've got a story or research to share, get in contact via email, ping at or our Apenick social media channels. And be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time.